The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 8 this morning, we're continuing in our sermon series through this epistle of 1 Peter. And so let's give attention to God's Word in these verses here in 1 Peter 2. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, use, you, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Let's pray together. Lord, take your words. We thank you that this is a living word. And we pray that it would abide and remain forever in our hearts, that it would give birth to good fruit, that it would find fertile soil in our hearts. We pray that with good and noble hearts, we would bear fruit with patience. We ask that you would do a fresh work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Peter is telling us here some really important things as we've been kind of going through this chapter and seeing who we are in Jesus. And in this chapter, we see who Jesus is and who we are. And so it kind of goes back and forth. We see who Jesus is in verse 4, that he's the living stone, that he's chosen and precious by God. Then we see who we are, verse 5. We are living stones. We are now part of a church being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. This is where we get the, the Luther term of the priesthood of all believers, that we are all priests. And the idea is that we all offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Well, how is anything acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? It's offered through Him. And He's the one who funnels out all of the uh, badness in our prayers and presents them to God. And He's the one who's atoned for our sins. And then, so we see who Jesus is again in verse 6. We see that He's the cornerstone. Once again, called chosen and precious because God chose him and appointed him for this work to save us from our sin. And then we see who we are, that we're an honored people and we're honored by the audience that matters. And here's a people of God that are starting to face some harassment. They're starting to face some soft persecution. They're starting to be reviled and maligned. They're starting to feel marginalized. And they're thinking, we are a people full of shame. And Peter wants to remind them, no, the honor is for you. You who believe, God will honor you. But those who don't believe, this is instead of a cornerstone. For them, it's the stumbling 
stone. And so it just goes back and forth. Who Jesus is, he's the cornerstone. Who we are, we are living stones. And so he's reminding them that, look, now that your faith and hope are in God, verse 21, now verse 22, now that she's purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, he has knit you together to a body for this sincere brotherly love, this Philadelphia, as the Greek term, this idea of this brotherly affection. And now we're to love one another earnestly because he's, he is, as, as last week's message was, we were born to love. We were born again to be uh, part of this body of Christ. And so now he's saying, put away all these things from the past and all these things that we still struggle with. You know, the reality is this. Mike Tyson had a great quote. You might not think of Mike Tyson as a profound person, but he was once in an interview and he was facing an upcoming boxing match and they asked him if he was concerned about the game plan of his opponent, of how he was going to fight him. And he said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Everybody has a plan until they get punched. Everybody has a plan until they get punched. That isn't now a meme and a, and a gif and all that kind of stuff because it's a powerful truth. Why do people check out of the church? Why is it so common today that people say, I love God, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I love God, love Jesus, but I, I don't see the purpose of the church. And the answer is the Tyson quote. They had a plan. I once was a part of it. I loved it, but... Somewhere along the line, they got punched. <laughs> they experienced hurt. They experienced pain. They experienced the difficulties of being in a body. And it, just as a family, we're called to brotherly love. There are family things that have to be worked out. And so Peter is saying, get rid of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. And instead, now... Long for this pure spiritual milk, growing up, tasting and seeing the Lord is good, and remembering where you fit into the body. That he's the living stone, we are the living stones. And so, it's interesting, there isn't any, this passage that was just read, there isn't any imperatives, there's no commands. And Peter is definitely on to a metaphor in these verses. I mean, you can't read these verses without like seeing stones, builders, cornerstone, house, priesthood, sacrifices. I mean, it all screams one word. What's the one word? Temple. It's all, the whole illustration. Stones, builders, cornerstone, house, priesthood, sacrifices. It all screams an illustration of the physical temple made of stones. So if you're like to draw this morning, I mean, you... you it's a picture of a temple that should be fresh in our imagery. And what Peter has in mind here is, which interesting, is that when the physical temple was first built, and even the tabernacle in Exodus, the very first time that we're told that God has filled somebody with his spirit, it's the skilled artisans that are filled by the spirit of God in Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have called you by name, Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones 
for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. So the very first time that somebody's filled with the Spirit of God, it's the artisans that are building the tabernacle. And when God is done building, these people are done building the tabernacle, we are told that it says in Exodus 40, this is the end of the book of Exodus, this is how it ends, that, he, that Moses erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar. He set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished his work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We call that the Shekinah glory. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. Cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So, wow, that's interesting. What happened when they finished building the temple in 2 Chronicles 7? Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord. Once it's completed, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Sound familiar? When the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So the tabernacle and the temple was where the people of God, they interacted with God. And God would meet them with his Shekinah glory. And they would come offering sacrifices. And there's two types of sacrifices of these, and, and this is where the, Peter is drawing this imagery where he's saying, we're now the priesthood. Wait a minute, before you had to be, you know, descendant of Aaron, and you had to be, uh, you know, from Levi, and you had to be a Levite, and you, it was a special class of people, and their job was to offer up the, the sacrifices. Well, there's two types of sacrifices. There are sacrifices for sins in Leviticus, and those are offered by the priests for atonement. But then there are sacrifices of thanksgiving, that the atonement has been made. And so now we as the people of God, Jesus comes as the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he does away with this whole sacrificial system. And now we are the ones now as the, as the priest giving the second type of offerings, not offerings for sin because Jesus has made atonement for sin once and for all. But we give thanks. And so as we come to the table this morning, we come to the Lord's table. It's called the Eucharist. That's the Greek word for give thanks. We come to offer spiritual sacrifices of thank you for paying for my sins. Thank you for welcoming me to the table and have made the meal, prepared it, done everything. All I got to do is come and eat and give thanks. You see, Jesus has come, and when Jesus shows up on the, on the scene, we are told that he, he tabernacled among us, right? We're told in John 1 when it says, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled among us, and we've seen his glory. Now the glory comes down, and, and it's on Jesus. And then Jesus says in the next chapter, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and I'll rebuild it in three days, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, believe me, the hour is coming and has now come when you're neither going to worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not going to be in a location of physical stones. 
And Jesus offers a high priestly prayer in John 17 and then John 19. He atones for our sins on the cross and says, it is finished. And the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. No more temple needed. No more barriers between us and God. The glory of God is now dwelling with man. It's finished. He has paid for our sins. Jesus is the Lamb. And so Jesus replaces the physical temple with himself. And we have divine access to God now through a person, not a place. And so he has this imagery in mind for us. When, you th- when I think of the most impressive building that I have ever seen, it's Canterbury Cathedral. I have a slide of the Canterbury Cathedral. Anybody been to Canterbury Cathedral? I know a few people have had to have seen this. I was 21 years old on an English lit class in college and walked into this and, and just standing out in front of it and going inside there and you're realizing that building is over 950 years old. And Thomas Beckett was killed there over 850 years ago in the building. I mean, we can't think of hardly anything in America that's over 250 years old. That is over 1,000 years old. And you walk in, it's impressive. It's inspi- I mean, there is some incredible workmanship. But I got news. Does God dwell somehow special there that he doesn't dwell at your home in your small group? or when you get on your knees and pray, or when we come to the Lord's table, or right here. It, that is impressive, but that doesn't harness the Spirit of God. The wind blows where it wills. God isn't confined to a place. He is the living stone. He's the living stone, and he's the cornerstone. You can take that down, now. <laughs> So this living stone is opposed to any other stone, okay? And the idea here, when you think of living stone, you think of how the Bible refers to stones. It was often a rebuke because the people of God would often worship the idols of the cultures around them by worshiping stones. And so he's, you know, Jesus is the living stone, okay? But like in the Old Testament, this would have been idolatry to worship a stone. Like Jeremiah 2.26, it says, A thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets who say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone you gave me birth, for they have turned their back on me. Idolatry. And so we don't worship physical stones, but we still have idols today. Everybody here is building upon a foundation. What's your cornerstone? We've come to build something here on earth. We're we're all building on something this morning. Jesus has come to build his church. Everything else is temporary. Every government agency, the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, or in Russia, the Kremlin, or Putin, or Biden, everything here is temporary. Every government agency, every company, every Everything that you see is temporary, but the church is not. Is the company you're working for going to be standing when Jesus returns? No. Doesn't mean it's not important. It's just you've got to keep it in perspective. Is the company that you're presently keeping company with, is it going to be standing when Jesus returns? I don't know. You have to answer that. Are you going to be standing 
or stumbling when Jesus returns for his bride, the church. The bride is to be making herself ready because the wedding's coming soon. We've got a wedding in our family, so I'm thinking about this stuff. I mean, it's only a couple months away, you know. The bride is making herself ready, getting ready for the wedding. The church is to be like that for Jesus' return. I know the Sinnies are thinking like that right now, right? <laughs> Every, everybody is building a life upon something. What is your cornerstone this morning? David Pallison, in this great article, he's a Christian counselor, he used to, he's with the Lord now, but he was a writer from Westminster Seminary, CCF Materials. He has an article on Psalm 131 that's wonderful, and if you want it, you send me an email, I'll send you the PDF of it, but he says, identify the ladders to nowhere. Identify the ladders to nowhere that pride erects in your life. Where do you raise up ladders of achievement? He says, how do you go for it? Go for victory, go for grades, go for promotion, go for the big church, go for the idealized devotional life. Where are you erecting ladders to nowhere that pride erects? Then he says, where do you clamber up ladders of acquisition? If you can only get a little bit more, get the goodies, get the security, get the recognition. Ladders of acquisition, there's still ladders to nowhere, but we're all building something. And how about the, the and then he talks about where do you race up ladders of appetite? They gratify your need for ease, gratify hunger or lust or superiority, gratify your need for control or to be understood. And then he says, where do we scuttle up ladders of avoidance? Got to get away from poverty, get away from rejection, get away from suffering, get away from people. And pride sets up these ladders and climbs on high, and the inner static gives away the secret. You feel nervously happy when you climb up a few rungs. You feel bitter and despairing when you land in a heap at the bottom. You see, sometimes we don't know what our cornerstone is until we've been tempted and tried and determine what really is the foundation of what we're building our life upon. And sometimes, you know, sometimes something weird will happen. You know, somebody wants grounds, they're going to divorce their spouse, and yet they don't have any biblical grounds. But they have convinced themselves that they deserve to be happy. And so they're, they're done. They stick a fork in it, and they're done with the marriage. What was the cornerstone? The cornerstone was, God wants your obedience, and to find your happiness from obedience first. But if happiness is first, then, then your foundation and your cornerstone is yourself. And that's not a good cornerstone. When you know you should say something, you know you should speak up for somebody, or you know you should stand for something that's right, but you're afraid of the pain that that's going to cause, and you don't stand, and you're quiet, and you say nothing, what's your cornerstone? It's approval of people. When I think of my wedding day, and when I left my groomsman on the ground after I ran over his foot, most of you have heard that illustration, but... I ran over my groomsman's foot as they're cleaning off the shaving cream on my car. And I said to Kim, I'll see him in a week. And I left him lying on the ground. Because what was my cornerstone? I have waited all my life for this sexual experience. And this guy can lay on the ground, but I got to go. <laughs> my cornerstone was, was myself and my car that had precious, uh, my precious paint had shaving cream on it. 
And so I left the guy on the ground saying, I'll see him in a week. No wonder Kim and I were in such a, a big fight at our first traffic light together as a married couple. Her trying to tell me I need to go back and apologize. And I said, and so my friends still tease me this, this day. I'll see you in a week. Yeah, well, we can functionally have Jesus as, you know, profess Jesus as cornerstone, but functionally something else might truly be the cornerstone. But that's why Jesus came and died for sinners like me. He died for sins, was raised for our justification. That's what makes him the living stone. By virtue of his resurrection, there was a big stone that tried to keep him in, the, in this place. All of Jesus' enemies, all the authorities, Jewish and Roman, and all hellish authorities did everything they could with the big stone to keep Jesus in his place. But he's the living stone. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's why he's the living stone. He's the cornerstone. And now we must build our life around him. He is the house. He's the temple. He's the one who's precious and he's the one who's perfect. And so Jesus was rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. Jesus was rejected publicly with people crying out, crucify him, crucify him. He was predicted and prophesied about in Isaiah 53 that he would be despised and rejected and that we esteemed him not. We hid our faces from him. We're told twice here in 1 Peter, this passage, that he was rejected. And Jesus prophesied his rejection multiple times. He talked about in John 17, I was just reading this week, he says, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his generation. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You see, Jesus is rejected, he's taken to the cross, and he's even rejected by his Father who's forsaking him and pours out his wrath so that we wouldn't be ever rejected. Jesus took our punishment. It was upon him. He climbed the tree of which we stole the fruit. He climbed it to restore. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, for by his stripes we are healed. And we were once going astray like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Are you building your life now upon this living stone? If not, then we are stumbling stones. Then we are the fools and not God, you see. I also wonder, where are you building your uh, how do you stand before God? You see, the whole point of Jesus coming was to provide us a righteousness, was to give us what we don't have in ourselves, which is the ability to stand before God, to have right standing before God. Jesus comes as the cornerstone, and he's rebuking the stumbling stone. And in Romans 9, the only passage about stone here, I don't think we, we uncovered in this service, the end of Romans 9 says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but, is, but as if it were based on works. They thought they could get to God by, by, their, by their doing rather than believing and resting in Jesus. 
And it says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we see that the biggest stumbling stone is our own works. That we, it's, our, it's our damnable good works. That we think somehow we can get to God by making up for where we've failed. No, that's our biggest barrier between us and God. And so Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel, for them, is that they might be saved. I I bear witness they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. You want to be right with God? It's not through your doing. It's to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law for righteousness. And so we can't seek to establish our own, but to submit to His. That's what Romans says. And so if our hands are full of works to bring to God this morning, as you come to table and you, you think, oh, how am I worthy to come to Jesus' table? We start thinking about how we did this week. Get rid of all that stuff. That's stumbling stone stuff. We come with empty hands of faith. We receive afresh what Christ has done for us on the cross. And let me just say that this first sermon here, this is an introduction on the uh, month of emphasis on our need for church officers as a church. So we're going to be looking at this the next four weeks. And this is kind of an introduction is that Jesus is the cornerstone but that he has all these living stones and they all have their part as we're being built up now as a spiritual house. And we all have to wrestle with, where do I fit? You see, let me ask you a quick, why do you build a house? Unless you're a builder and you're selling it, the main reason we build a house is to live in it. Jesus isn't gonna sell his house. He builds the house and he lives in it. And he's here. And he gives these different gifts by his spirit to his church. And now we're all being built up into a spiritual house. And so this quote that's in the bulletin by Spurgeon, if you look in your notes there, he talks about the difference between being spiritual stones and being rolling stones. And the idea is that we all have our different places. You know, the men's, men's groups, small groups, ladies' groups, women's groups, small groups, prayer meetings people that support, people that lead and help with the leading of the praise team. We have elders, we have deacons, we have Sunday school teachers, children's teachers, check-in, hospitality, greeters, ushers. There's all kinds of, of places to fill in. Well, Spurgeon was commenting on this, and he says, I know there's some of you who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, no, now why not? And they say, because I can be just as good as a Christian without it. I say, are you clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by obedience? There's a brick. What's a brick made for? It's made to build a house. It's of no use for the brick to tell me it's just a good a brick while it's kicking about the ground by itself as it would be as a part of a house. Actually, it would be a good-for-nothing brick. And so you Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life that Christ would have you live, and you're much to blame for the injury that you do. I want to close by just sharing the the parable of the three bricklayers. I wonder if some of you have heard this story of the, the three bricklayers. 
And there's a story that's told, and the story goes back to the great fire of 1666 that leveled London. And the world's most famous architect, Christopher Wren, was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, according to the story, and it is online, I don't, haven't Snopes.com'd it and to see if it's legit or not, but one day in 1671, Christopher Wren observed three bricklayers on a scaffold, one crouched, one half-standing, and one standing tall, working hard and fast. To the first bricklayer, Christopher Wren asked the question, what are you doing? To which the bricklayer replied, I'm a bricklayer. I'm working hard laying bricks to feed my family. The second bricklayer responded, I'm a builder. I'm building a wall. The third bricklayer, the most productive of the three and the future leader of the group, was also asked, what are you doing? And with a gleam in his eye, he said, I'm a cathedral builder. I'm building a cathedral to the Almighty. You see, the first bricklayer had a job. Second bricklayer had an occupation. Third bricklayer had a calling. What's your calling, brothers and sisters? What's your calling? Where's your place? You're part of the king and what he's building. We don't build the church. We, we, we don't build the kingdom. We announce it. We, we seek it. We, we call people to it. We build for it. But Jesus is the only one that builds it. It's his doing. But he has a place for each of us. Let's think about that as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Let's pray. Lord, this is your church. We do ask that you would provide more officers for our church, but we also think of all the other needs that are in the church and ask that together we would bring glory to your name. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to come to your table. Thank you we are welcomed as family. We thank you you're not ashamed to call us brothers. Thank you for atoning for our sins. We ask now that you would meet us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.